Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name's Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show is about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that's important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Hello, Scott here. The skies of winter provide both beauty and a challenge. I get to start earlier in the evening, about 7 or so, and there are quite a few bright stars to be seen, and the constellations containing them are a bit easier to find. But baby, it's cold outside. This does help dry out the sky so the stars seem to pop, but baby, it's cold outside. So I put on a coat and also think layers. Okay, enough kidding around. Traveling out from my cozy house, I scan the northern sky. I remember saying in an earlier episode that I can get my directions using the star pattern known as the Big Dipper. Once I know the direction north, I can get oriented quite quickly and then use this orientation each time I go out after that. But at this time of the year, the Dipper is a challenge to find. It sits low, just below due north and the horizon. So anything in that direction, houses, other buildings, hills, can block some of its stars. But a clear horizon can let me see the four stars making its bowl and the three stars making its handle, enough to get started getting oriented again. If I can spot the Big Dipper, its front two stars can lead me to the North Star, also called Polaris. Start with the star in the front of the bowl of the Dipper and draw a line up to the star which forms the lip of the Dipper along the front. Continue this line until you meet a relatively bright star, but not the brightest star in the sky, and the North Star should be reached. The North Star does not seem to move all night long or all year round. The other stars seem to circle around it, and from my location, its height above the northern horizon always stays fixed. That means, once I have found it, when I go out into the night sky and face north, I can lift my eyes up to about the same height, and the north star should be there. Handy on those nights when the horizon is cluttered enough to hide some of the stars of the Big Dipper. The north star, Polaris, is part of a group of stars known as the Little Dipper. Neither the Big Dipper nor the Little Dipper are true constellations. To an astronomer, a constellation is a region of the sky that is occupied by a group of stars that the ancient peoples collected together for the purpose of storytelling. But for mapping purposes, the modern astronomers have divided the sky into 88 different regions based on the location of these ancient star groupings. Just like country boundaries, state boundaries, or even county boundaries, The mapping in the sky simply breaks the sky into smaller pieces for the purpose of finding things in the sky. Getting back to the Big and Little Dipper, they are just parts of the bigger groupings of stars known as constellations. They are easier to find because their shapes are more familiar to see. Simple shapes made of bright stars always makes mapping the sky and direction finding a bit easier. I will talk more of the constellations that the Dippers are part of later in the spring when they are better placed in the evening sky. For now, winter sky is before me, and the temperatures may not let me stand out here too long to contemplate astronomical history. I now swing my glance to the west, turn left if I start by facing north, and another familiar pattern of bright stars can be seen. A large triangle of stars known as the Summer Triangle is working its way toward the western horizon. 
In this case, these three stars are actually the brightest stars of three separate constellations. Sometimes familiar groupings of stars are not all in one constellation, like the case of the Big and Little Dippers. The two stars closest to the western horizon are Vega, more to the north, and Altair, more to the south. Third star, a bit higher in the west than the other two, is Deneb. Vega is the brightest star in Lyra the Harp, a small constellation that is rectangular in shape just south of Vega. Deneb is in the constellation Cygnus the Swan, which is supposed to be a large swan in flight, but also contains the bright pattern of stars known as the Northern Cross. Deneb is the top of the cross, with the main beam of the cross extending from Deneb down toward the western horizon, stopping with a star that is almost on the line between Vega and Altair. Altair is in the constellation known as Aquila the Eagle. The stars that make up this constellation are dimmer, and collectively can take a little imagination to make them into an eagle. It's a bit easier to see in the summer and autumn skies when these constellations are much higher, nearly overhead in those seasons. To see a planet, I now turn toward the south. Uncertainty in finding it can be removed on the evening of the 14th, when the moon lies just to the south of Mars. Mars is not as bright as it was earlier this year. We passed Mars back near the end of July. When we pass an outer planet, that is when it is brighter in our sky because we are closest to it. But we are now several months from that time and have moved out in front of Mars in our faster orbit, increasing the distance to it and causing it to become dimmer. Still, it is Mars and the only planet easily seen in the unaided eye in the early evening sky. If I keep looking higher up to nearly overhead, a pattern of four stars all about the same brightness catches my eye. This is the great square of Pegasus and marks the body of that flying horse. From the southwestern star and extending toward the southwest is a check mark of stars which mark the neck and head of Pegasus. From the northwestern star of the great square is a pair of lines of stars marking the front legs. And from the northeastern star of the great square is another pair of lines of stars marking the back legs. Or does it? That pair of lines of stars is actually the constellation Andromeda. She is a princess chained and sacrificed to a sea monster as punishment for her mother's bragging, specifically about her mother's beauty. And where is her mother and father, for that matter? They are just north of Andromeda watching the spectacle. Her mother, Cassiopeia, is a W-shaped pattern of stars easily seen in the northern sky at this time of year. Her father, Cepheus, is made of fainter stars in the shape of a steep-roofed house in the part of the sky between Polaris and Cassiopeia. Makes one wonder if he is made of dimmer stars because he lacked the power to control his wife's bragging. But I digress. The sea monster and the hero of the story are also found nearby, but they are made of constellations of stars that don't form simple patterns. A star map is a better option for locating them. This brings us to the eastern sky, where a bright and familiar pattern of stars can be seen rising. At seven in the evening, one might just glimpse the three stars that form the straight line marking the belt of Orion the Hunter. Orion is a popular figure because of the 88 constellations that bring up the sky, it is one of the few that actually looks like its namesake, made of bright stars that mark the shoulders, waist, and knees of this celestial hunter. Later in the evening, or later this winter, and on into spring, Orion will be better placed in the sky. 
One last astronomical event to watch for in December's skies is the Geminid meteor shower. This shower is to winter what the Perseid meteor shower is to summer, a meteor shower that can be depended on for seeing shooting stars. Though this shower can produce close to 100 meteors an hour from a dark site, no city lights, near its peak in the morning hours of December 14th, the moon will interfere a bit, at least in the evening skies of the 13th, for those that want to go out then. It will be a waxing crescent moon and not set until almost midnight. But once it is gone, hardy souls venturing out into the cold winter morning may see more than a few shooting stars, weather permitting. Meteor showers take patience. Seeing them is not automatic. You need to plan on being out an hour or so, not looking at any one point in the sky, but allowing your eyes to slowly scan the skies. Hot cocoa or coffee might be the preferred drink. Stomping one's feet can help keep feet warm. And, once again, layers of clothing are likely more requirement than a suggestion. You're currently listening to Bench Talk, the weekend science at WFMP 106.5 here in Louisville, Kentucky. Hello, Dave Robinson here. You've probably heard of this before, Autism Spectrum Disorder. Autism Spectrum Disorder is a relatively broad term that's used by psychologists and psychiatrists, which is used to describe several types of situations where people have difficulty exhibiting social skills, they have difficulty being empathetic, they don't have flexible behavior and communication. Autism spectrum disorder includes people with Asperger's syndrome, but also includes people with what's called pervasive developmental disorder, Rett syndrome, childhood disintegrative disorder, and just plain old-fashioned autism disorder, which is the harshest form of the autism spectrum. In the research paper I'd like to introduce you to today, they're talking about the entire autism spectrum disorder. So we're talking about all those kinds of situations. Now, the symptoms of autism spectrum disorder show up very early in a person's life. They show up in childhood. So here's the question. If you're a parent, how do you know if your child has autism spectrum disorder? How do you know if your kid has autism? It's a tricky question because the earliest signs of autism spectrum disorder are just based on the behavior of the child. There isn't any magical way of diagnosing the problem. Here's what the National Institutes of Health say about autism. Quote, Even as infants, children with autism spectrum disorder may seem different, especially when compared to other children their own age. They may become overly focused on certain objects, rarely make eye contact, and fail to engage in typical babbling with their parents. In other cases, children may develop normally until the second or third year of life, but then start to withdraw and become indifferent to social engagement. The severity of autism spectrum disorder can vary greatly and is based on the degree to which social communication, insistence of sameness of activities and surroundings, and repetitive patterns of behavior affect the daily functioning of the individual, That's what the NIH says about diagnosing autism. 
According to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, about one of every 59 children now are born in the United States with autism spectrum disorder. This is a higher frequency of autism than what's been seen in the past. In the year 2000 and in 2002, the incidence of autism in children was 1 in 150. Now it's 1 in 59. It's gone from 1 out of 150 children to 1 out of 59. Well, how are children diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder? Well, it's the parents who first observe it. There's a series of questions that the parents can answer about their child's behavior, and then developmental experts can take it from there. The problem with these parental surveys, though, is that you get a lot of false positives. A false positive would be where the diagnosis is autism, even when the child doesn't actually have autism. That's a false positive, and that's obviously a problem. Now, there are better diagnostic tools that medical experts can apply to determine whether a child has autism spectrum disorder, but they take time. This is because these medical experts have to be developmental disabilities specialists, and there's just not that many developmental disability specialists out there. So it could often mean a wait of more than a year for this kind of diagnosis. And meanwhile, while you're waiting for proper diagnosis, the child is still dealing with their problem, and so are the parents. The child's brain is continuing to develop, and if there is autism, it's just not getting effectively treated if it hasn't even been diagnosed yet. So for some time now, researchers have been looking for a quicker way to diagnose autism in children. And part of this effort involves looking for a biomarker. A biomarker is some sort of an indicator of the disorder that is reasonably easy to measure and is pretty quantifiable. So perhaps it's a chemical that's in the blood or a chemical that's in the urine. Or maybe there's a specific behavior that indicates autism. That's what they're looking for. There's already some putative biomarkers out there. For decades, they've known that children with autism spectrum disorder tend to have higher levels of serotonin in their blood. Children with autism will also often have elevated biomarkers for oxidative stress, and neuroinflammation can also be correlated with autism. So you can measure levels of neuropeptides like glutamate and GABA, but these biomarkers are not perfect predictors of the autism spectrum. They're just not ideal ways to diagnose autism. Well, what about genetics? Is there a genetic analysis you can make to diagnose somebody with autism? Well, heritability studies using twins indicates that autism spectrum disorder is about 50% genetic and 50% environmental. So I'm told that if one identical twin has autism, then there's a 90% chance that the other twin will also have autism. So there is probably some genetic component to this disorder. So why isn't there a dependable genetic biomarker for autism spectrum disorder? Well, one of the problems is that autism is very heterogeneous. It shows up in a multitude of ways. And then secondly, the disorder is expressed differently in the same person at different ages. So that makes it really tricky to recognize. And thirdly, what's the control group of children that you're comparing to? What's a child who doesn't have autism act like? There are other developmental disorders that can get confused with autism. So, so far, there just hasn't been a reliable, objective test for autism spectrum disorder. 
In the past, the emphasis has been looking for that silver bullet, that one single biomarker that could be used to indicate autism, but they just haven't found that silver bullet yet. So now experts are looking for a combination of biomarkers. Maybe there's a network of biomarkers that you could measure that would do a better job of diagnosing autism spectrum disorder. That's what the paper I want to tell you about today is trying to do. This research comes out of Penn State University and SUNY Syracuse there in New York, and it was published in the November 9, 2018 issue of Frontiers in Genetics, and this article is freely available online. We'll make sure we eventually post the hyperlink to this article on our Facebook page, and in Facebook, just search for Bench Talk, The Week in Science. Anyway, the type of biomarker they were looking here is RNA. They weren't really looking for a protein or DNA. They were looking for RNA. Most people haven't really heard as much about RNA as they have about DNA, and that makes sense since DNA is that genetic material that actually gets passed on from generation to generation. Well, DNA is not just the code that we inherit from our parents. It's also the code for all the important proteins in our cells that catalyze chemical reactions. It's proteins that carry out all the absolutely critical functions in our bodies, and they're all encoded by our DNA. But the biomarker they're looking for in this paper is RNA. RNA has some chemical similarity to DNA. They are both codes. In fact, DNA is the code for making RNA, while RNA is the code for making proteins. So you could think of RNA as an intermediary between DNA and proteins. So this paper is basically asking the question, are there specific RNA molecules that can be easily extracted from children's bodies that can be used to accurately predict autism spectrum disorder? And the answer is yes. In this paper, they ended up looking at RNA levels in 456 different children, varying in age from one and a half years old to about seven years of age. About half of these kids had already been clinically diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, while the other half of the children were showing either typical development or were showing signs of this thing called developmental delay, but that's not autism. In this experiment, all they did was collect saliva from each of these children then they isolated RNA from that saliva. This is kind of nice because it means they didn't have to draw blood from each one of these children. This saliva probably contained hundreds if not thousands of different kinds of RNA molecules in it. And these RNA molecules could either be coding for specific proteins, and we've got tons of those, or they could have some sort of regulatory function in the cell. What they were able to do is figure out what each of these different RNA molecules actually coded for because they determined the exact RNA sequence of each of these molecules. So it's kind of like when you come home at night and you have a stack of mail in your mailbox. You don't know what each letter is until you open it up and look. So that's kind of what they did here. They isolated all these different RNA molecules and then sequenced them to figure out what they actually code for. Now these researchers were specifically looking for what's called non-coding RNA rather than coding RNA. Coding RNA is messenger RNA, mRNA. That's the code that ribosomes latch onto in the process of synthesizing specific protein molecules. So these researchers apparently decided to focus on different types of RNA other than mRNA. The six different kinds of RNA they looked at were one, ribosomal RNA, there's microRNA, there's peewee interacting RNA, small nucleolar RNA, 
long intergenic non-coding RNA, which is called link RNA. And then here's the kicker. They looked at microbial RNA, too. That's RNA that's produced by different bacterial species that might actually be living in the mouth of these children. That's one of the really clever things about this particular research project. They not only assess the human RNA found in each of these children's saliva, but they looked at bacterial RNA, too. Now, in August of 2018, just a few months ago, these same authors published a different paper where they reported that autistic children had different species of bacteria living in their mouths compared to non-autistic children. Now, that doesn't prove that these unique bacteria are causing autism, but they definitely wanted to keep it in mind during this larger, more detailed study. Now, you might not realize this, but all of us are thought to have something like 500 different species of bacteria living inside of our mouth. It's kind of shocking, but when you think about it, all the raw food that we eat, this food that's been imported from farms all around the country, all around the world, they all have bacteria on them. And then there's the fermented foods we routinely eat, like cheese and beer and wine and pickles and sauerkraut, yogurt and bread. I'm surprised we only have 500 different species of bacteria living in our mouths. So to get back to our article, they were looking for specific strains of bacteria in the mouth that might predict a child's likelihood of getting autism spectrum disorder. But they also looked at all the different kinds of non-coding RNAs that I mentioned before, like the microRNA and the peewee interacting. They wanted to see if any of these correlated with autism. And as I mentioned before, they're kind of giving up on the idea of finding one biomarker for autism. They were looking for a reliable collection of biomarkers that might do a good job of predicting autism. The best results they had was a panel of 32 different diagnostic RNA molecules. 12 of them were for specific bacterial species. These 12 bacteria included species like Staphylococcus, Pasteurella, Lactobacillus. And then the other 20 diagnostic RNAs included one small nucleolar RNA, eight peewee interacting RNAs, and 11 different kinds of microRNA. And these non-coding RNAs were actually produced by each of the children themselves. Now, microRNAs are a pretty interesting type of RNA. We've really only known about them for maybe 25 years. They were first discovered back in 1993. MicroRNAs occur in both plants and animals, and even some viruses have microRNA. I don't know, the last estimation I saw was that humans have about 2,000 different loci for microRNAs. And then peewee interacting RNAs are doing a similar kind of things in our body. They reduce the expression of specific genes, but they've only been known about since about 2006. Oh, you might be wondering, what are these microRNA and peewee interacting RNA molecules actually doing in our body? Well, what they basically do is silence our genes. They reduce the ability of our genes to be expressed. Sometimes they do this by destroying specific messenger RNA molecules that actually code for proteins. But sometimes what they do is they silence our gene by reducing the amount of translation that occurs, a translation by ribosomes into proteins. They, they can stop or slow down that process too. The neat thing about microRNAs is that they can actually reduce translation of hundreds of different genes, not just one. So if we have 2,000 different loci for microRNA, that's a lot of our genes that could be regulated by this mechanism. Maybe a third of our genes are regulated by microRNA. 
But the silencing of genes is not random, depending on the specific RNA sequence of the non-coding RNA you're talking about. Some of these genes get silenced in our bodies, and some others don't. And in the case of autism spectrum disorder, the type of genes that do get silenced are those having something to do with chromatin organization. That's how chromosomes are organized. They'll have something to do with regulation of transcription, which is that process of making mRNA from DNA. They'll have something to do with synaptic functioning, and that's the way our individual neurons communicate with each other. And finally, they have something to do with what's called neuronal projection, which I think is how the shape and size of our different individual neurons interact spatially with one another. So what these researchers have done is they've developed this algorithm that looks at these 32 different RNA biomarkers and now they're able to distinguish between children with autism from children without autism and they could even distinguish between children with autism and those that have developmental delays but who don't appear to actually have autism. So first they developed this algorithm which is basically just a mathematical model or a formula using the results of about 82 percent of the children and then they tested their model against the remaining 18 percent of the children. Their algorithm appeared to be correct in predicting autism spectrum disorder 85% of the time. 85% of the time it was right. That's very exciting. They include a nice figure at the end of their article talking about the four areas that should be considered when looking at the causes of autism. First, there's a genetic component involving various alterations of chromosomal DNA. Don't forget those studies with identical twins indicating that Autism spectral disorder is about 50% genetic and 50% environmental. Well, they're saying that that environmental component might include factors like the age of the parents at the birth of the child, the maternal body mass index, whether there is a premature birth involved or not, maternal medications, birth complications, and things like that. And then thirdly, there's this gene silencing component. Maybe it's genes involved in neuron functioning that's described in this paper. And then finally, a bacterial component. But the authors conclude that even though this suite of RNA biomolecules they found are really good at predicting autism spectrum disorder, they don't discount the role of the parents in first recognizing neurological or behavioral deficits in their children. So the parents should be involved in recognizing the issues with their child regarding things like emotional and nonverbal communication. Parents will realize their difficulty forming relationships or repetitive movements or inflexible rituals, fixated interests, things like that. And then these things should be considered alongside the RNA biomolecule that they've identified. This research is really quite exciting because it means that a child who's suspected of having autism spectrum disorder could donate a little bit of saliva and diagnosis could be done much more quickly and accurately than before and then those children could be placed under the appropriate treatment much more quickly. So this is really promising research. Hey, thanks a lot. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. 
You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time. 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.